Hi, my name is Martin Purnell and welcome to Off Grid Christianity, a weekly podcast for those who go or don't go to church and for those that are disillusioned. This podcast series is to encourage via conversation and not necessarily change your mind prior to listening. You can contact us as well by email, ogc at accessradio.biz, business.biz. Check out our Facebook page, Off Grid Christianity, and we now have our own website as well. Get us, eh? Offgridchristianity.co.uk, where you can contact us as well from that website. That's offgridchristianity.co.uk. So please enjoy today's guest, who describes himself as a blogger, a founder of Pioneer Training in Oxford, and a hub mission director for Church Mission Society, or CMS as I used to know it. Our guest has a BSc in Statistics and an MA in Applied Theology, and has released quite a few music albums to date. I first played one of his tracks way back in the late 1990s on a certain radio station, and I've often wondered whatever happened to him. As one half of Johnny's in the Basement, is their track Human just as relevant today? Does anyone else remember this track? Better find out answers to these questions and more, as it gives me great pleasure to welcome Johnny Baker to Off Greek Christianity. Good afternoon to you, Johnny, or should I say good evening wherever you are. So where are you, please? I'm in London. Great to be with you. Thanks ever so much for inviting me to talk with you. Can I just say that I want extra sympathy today because uh, five minutes, well, half an hour ago, I did a test and I've got COVID. So any coughing, spluttering or anything else like that, extra sympathy, please. So, sir, here we go. Five questions. Let's see how you get on with them, please, if that's right. If you could invite anybody from history for an evening meal, alive or dead, so that you could ask them questions, who would it be? I decided I wanted to talk with the woman at the well in John 4. Oh, really? Brilliant. <laughs> Why? Well, I mean, I've always loved that encounter, that story, and I think the the Jews so didn't like Samaritans, but it's particularly the end of the story where she invites Jesus to stay for two days and the disciples find themselves there as well. I've always wanted to know what on earth happened in those two days. Yeah. So... That would be the conversation I'd like to have with her. <laughs> well, that's very good. What do you think she'll say? Uh, well, I think she obviously was inspired by the encounter, but I think the thing I'd be interested to know is, well, yeah, my hunch is that the sort of, in terms of off-grid Christianity, which I'd, I'd forgotten that was the name of your thing, that was off-grid, you know. It mm-hmm. was like starting an insider movement among the Samaritans rather than persuading them they need to become Jews or something. So very off-grid, I think. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's funny you say that. That takes me back, oh, to when I was just, just I go back to church in my very early 20s and my girlfriend at the time and I, we were asked to do that sketch in church. Oh. Yeah, I always remember that. <laughs> anyway. I was rubbish as an actor, still am. Question two, who is your favourite biblical character or favourite biblical story or favourite parable, please, Johnny? I always loved Elijah and Elisha, the prophets. Mm. And uh, the story I particularly love, I think, out of all of those is one where it's Elisha and they wake up in the morning and his uh, servant opens the curtains and looks out and they're surrounded by the army of the king of Aram. And the reason is because Elisha's basically been tipping off the Israelite army on where they're going to be waiting for ambush. So they decide to capture him. You know, the servant panics and Elijah says something like, Lord, open his eyes. And then he sees sort of their... Uh, heavenly armies around about or whatever and then praise and they get blinded so he goes out and they they take them somewhere and they find themselves at the i think it's at the king's place surrounded by an army 
And the king says, shall we kill them? And he says, no, sit them down and have a great meal and then send them home. And that's what happens. And peace ensues. So I was always thought that was a good story. Yeah. Well, just funny enough, in my Daily Bread Bible notes, we're actually doing a live show at the moment, so I can skip those pages. Now you just told me all what happened. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. Thank you. Yeah, it is a good story. Next question then, good sir. If you were Prime Minister for the day and could change any law or impose a new law, what would it be? I would impose a maximum wage rather than a minimum wage. I mean, I don't really mind what it is. Let's, how much do you need? Let's say £500,000 or something. And I think with that, I mean, you can address taxation in a number of ways, but I would happily incentivize those who were being taxed that they could have a say in how money that they made above that was spent. So it could go towards education or arts or immigration relief or whatever you like. I don't mind. They, they could have a say in where that went. But I think that would make a huge difference. You know, the wealth disparity is such in our country that it's shameful, really. But uh, yeah, and I think do you really need all that? So yeah, five. Let's say five hundred thousand pounds for the sake of it. What a week, month, no, a year, a year. Okay, fine. Which would mean the house prices would come down as well, then, wouldn't it? Yeah. So the next question is: When are you going to be standing for Parliament? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I don't know. I've never thought about it, but I think it, it definitely requires a bit of imagination, and I'm quite good at that. So, but yeah, who knows? It might be a bit more challenging than it looks. I suspect. I think so. I mean, how sensitive are you? Because I could never become an MP. No, no, I don't think so. No, quite sensitive. Uh, yeah, I think so. Well, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I, I think in terms of the system, the the basic deficit, as I say, I think is imagination. You know, mm. we need to organise society differently. It just feels so stark, glaringly obvious on so many issues, but you don't see that well willingness to engage in that from many of the people involved in the conversation. Sadly, yeah, 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 yeah. That would be a good talking point if nothing else. Yeah. Can't see getting many votes from certain from certain hierarchy, but plenty of votes from other side of the political divide. Yeah. Thank you. If you could have a frivolous one, then because I like frivolous laws that would be personal to you, could be really stupid, or whatever. Anything come to mind? Yeah, oh, maybe it'll come to me in a minute. Yeah. Some people come up with some great frivolous ones, and I thought, just see what happens. <laughs> Question four: Outside of family events, what has been your most enjoyable day out so far, please, Johnny? I found this quite challenging to think of scrolling back through my life. So I ended up picking something from this year, which was I canoed the Great Glen this year with five other guys. So that is from Fort William to Inverness. I mean, it was actually four days, but let's pick day one. And it was just wonderful canoeing. We were we were wild camping, cooking off the fire in the evening. Yeah, it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience outdoors so yeah that canoe in the great Glen was what i went to wow and when was this which month uh may so it wasn't too bad weather wise plenty of mosquitoes most probably and mozzies there were a few mosquitoes yeah i thought they started a bit later but there were a few but not too bad yeah, yeah. <laughs> no i can just picture it now sounds fantastic thank you conversely then question five what has been your most embarrassing moment to date then please johnny well again it's it's hard to know what one's pick isn't it but the one i picked was uh perhaps an experience lots of other people have had in a different way, which was sending an email that you didn't mean to send. <laughs> I was taking part in an, in an event somewhere in the north of England with someone else and uh, the planning process, it just felt like this event was not going to take off for various reasons. So 
the other person that I was doing it with was called John and the organizer was called John. I sent an email to John who I was, I thought to the person I was doing it with that said, is it time to get off this sinking ship? Only I sent it to the organizer of the event. <laughs> you know, I sent an apology afterwards. I was like, it's just saying something like, oh, you know, ignore that. I was just being frivolous or something, but it clearly wasn't. Anyway, surprise, surprise, the event never happened. That ship did sink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think everyone can identify with that. Sending the wrong email. Yeah. At least with WhatsApp, you can push the delete button very quickly and delete it hopefully before anyone sees it but uh an email is more i always find it's odd with email where people send you a message saying recall email and you've already got the email so it just seems completely pointless well i didn't even know that it was a thing thank you very much indeed johnny i mentioned earlier on human the track by john is in the basement i think we started playing it around about 1998 1999 yeah i think that album was 98 yes that's right yeah you've recorded many other albums the thing I remember mostly about that track was how innovative it was, uh, real cutting-edge stuff. And at the time, there was a big thing about contemporary Christian music. What do you remember of that time? Yeah, I mean, we set up our own label so that we could be a bit more independent in terms of, I suppose, controlling the artist side of things because it felt like the wider Christian music scene was... I don't know how to say it. I mean, there was a lot of focus on worship music, but it, a lot of it felt fairly middle of the road. So we didn't really want to get pushed in that direction. So I thought it was better to have some artistic control. So, uh, yeah, that Johnny's in the Basement album was on Proust, which was a label that we set up, which was good fun, yeah. I mean, it was pretty, you know, it was small-scale stuff. I mean, in terms of music that I was inspired by, I mean, I went to Greenbelt this year and it was the 50th year. But mm. as teenagers, we would go to Greenbelt every year, you know, and loved loved it. It was very uh, inspiring. But round about 98, I don't even know who would have been playing then. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I loved, yeah, probably for me, one of the m memories, maybe that was a, it probably was around 98 or maybe a bit later was, coming across the early years of alternative worship music mm. by the late, late service because that that was that felt very surprising because it was sort of dance music meets liturgy it had lyrics about struggle and other things it just felt like a very different thing and i remember when i heard their first cassette i think it was thinking i don't know what this is but i really like it <laughs> I used to use as a backing track for one of my things on the radio. I think the track's called Going to Jerusalem, Going Up to Jerusalem. Yeah, sounds right. Yeah. As you say, there was a thing in the late 1990s, and that was about the time of DC Talk coming over from America. They're making inroads of the yeah. newsboys and things like that. Yeah, it was definitely a, a, an underground vibe, I suppose, about alternative worship. I've been out of that scene for quite some time. Where's it now then, do you think? Well, I think that scene, yeah, as you say, late 90s was very fresh and energetic, was engaging with culture very differently, I think, through visual liturgy, was, was quite, quite informed by, you know, liberation theology, feminist theology. I mean, I, mean, I remember from Greenbelt, there was an email discussion forum called Postmodern Christian, which was people were discussing all these ideas around wider cultural change. And I think alternative worship was trying to say, okay, how do you 
do faith in this new cultural space mm. and i think it was very edgy very interesting yeah and i think out of that there was a lot of networks and groups that did things many of them were run by volunteers around the edges of the church the church broadly i think was pretty hospitable to that you know winding forward by i don't know 2004 the Church of England and Methodist Church published a report where they were basically saying these things going on around the edge of the church seem to be a good thing, you know, and that's where the language of fresh expressions of church and all that uh, came from, I think. I mean, in term, in my take on that would be it was a kind of diffusion of innovation. So you always get this bell curve of change and alternative worship, I think, was right on the front end of the early adopters of something. And then perhaps Fresh Expressions was much more trying to move it into a bit more of the early majority, as they call it, in that thing. So, yeah, I mean, I think that stuff, youth ministry and then emerging church alternative worship, I think were really significant culture change pieces for the for the church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we had, of course, in the late 1990s from the UK, we had Delirious amongst other bands as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we decided to go into more of a praise and worship style as well. But yeah, good times. So what are you doing musically now then, sir? Well, I mean, I haven't recorded lots of music. I moved to London in about 1995, I think. Yeah. When I did so, for whatever reason, I decided to kind of abandon what I had been doing, which was before that I'd been involved in youth ministry and was leading a band and whatever else. But shortly after moving to London, I thought I just cannot... I mean, maybe people in the off-grid uh, world will relate to this. I, I cannot survive doing this thing anymore, being on a platform, performing these songs. And that, there was something about the culture of it that I found difficult. And I got rid of my guitar. 17 years later, I bought one again. And that was partly as a result of a dream. So just sat next to me here, I have a guitar. I probably play something on it most days, but I've just taught myself kind of finger-style playing songs that I know. I haven't written or recorded much music for a while, but I do enjoy playing. I've kind of said to myself, which I think is a good thing to do, if anyone ever asks me, you know, you're at a party or something and says, can you play us a tune? I have to say yes. So if I'm ever asked to perform, I will say yes, because uh, that that makes you perform in front of other people yeah. in that way, I think is good. But I mean, what I did do when I moved to London was we we did record quite on, on the label Proust. We recorded quite a few albums that were more electronic or ambient or whatever, more related to alternative worship. Yeah. We ran a labyrinth in St. Paul's Cathedral, recorded backing tracks for that. Ran a, I think it was 1999, we ran the communion service at Greenbelt and sort of did a dance music Eucharist album. And so, yeah, I did, I did get involved in recording for quite a number of years, but I haven't recorded any music for, for a, quite a few years now. Wow. I want to talk about Labyrinth later on. Uh, you've mentioned Greenbelt a couple of times already. Am I right in saying your wife has quite a high-powered job behind the scenes for Greenbelt? She was a trustee and then she stepped in as acting director for, I can't remember if it was two years or something like that, when it was between directors. So she did have a role. She's not involved there now. 
Yeah, I mean, I worked out this year, I've definitely been to Greenbelt over 40 times. So it's definitely been part of the landscape of my life, as it were. And I think it's a fantastic space. I mean, they published a book this year called 50, and it has about 50, slightly more, I think, short reflections in it. It's a beautifully made book with photography and things. But I thought it really captured the spirit of Greenbelt so well. You know, I'm so yeah. so thankful it exists as a space in you know, wider church or whatever you want to call it in Britain. I think it's been really creative. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember uh, reading a book similar, but from a secular point of view, I think it was from Nebworth about all the music bands they had and all the various events they've had there. Oh, okay, yeah. I think Greenbelt was there for a couple of years as well, wasn't it, Nebworth? Wasn't Nebworth? Yeah, it was quite. Yeah, that was in it. It was probably pretty big in that season. Yeah. <laughs> And it was great to see it on um, Songs of Praise as well last month when they broadcast live. Around. Oh, I missed that. Yeah, Good. I don't think you were on it. I did, did have a look. And I'm more likely to be my son, to be honest. If I don't know if he was on it. He, he's a poet, so he Greenbelt love him, yeah. Oh, right, okay. They did show other areas of what was going on at Greenbelt, which is great. Just one final thing. The thing I remember most about Greenbelt, uh, and I've only ever been once, and that was when it was at Cheltenham Racecourse. They did a thing, I think, once with the uh, what was called the 9 o'clock service from Sheffield, and that was obviously before the whole implosion came in around it. What do you remember of that? Because it had a very big effect on me. But it sounds shocking. I didn't go to it because I went to hear Bruce Coburn hey. playing an acoustic thing in the big top at the same time, and I was torn between the two, but I've always loved Bruce Coburn's stuff, and it was absolutely magical. I'm glad I made that choice. I mean, yeah, I never went to the 9 o'clock service. In some ways, I regret that because I, I wish I had, but... I have got a recording of the planetary mass that I got from somewhere that I really, really loved. I thought it was absolutely inspirational in the liturgy and so on. So, yeah, it was absolutely tragic, you know, when the whole thing blew up about abusive leadership and so on. But I just, you know, it goes to show we met Soul Survivor, the Catholic Church, Anglican Church, alternative worship. No one's exempt, are they, from um, the possibility of abusive leadership, sadly. Yeah, so... Yeah, that was a difficult season. When that story broke, I was on holiday in France. I remember feeling completely gutted about it. Yeah. I had uh, the pleasure of, well, it was a pleasure, I suppose, <laughs> broadcast from Spring Harvest for a week in Skegness, bracing Skegness, and it was very bracing. But the thing I remember most about was talking to the alternative youth worker for the alternative service when the main tent was kicking off. And he came on board because we were doing a live show every night from it. He came on. And of course, when he mentioned St. Thomas and Crooks, that was it. And he was so open and honest. And I asked him there and then, well, how many people do you think have been affected by this who've lost their faith? And he said, 300. And, you know, I admired his honesty. You know, I think it was really, really important. What else can you remember from that time and how it affected you? Well, I think the, the thing that I was impressed about was that, which may not be that known, I don't know, was that I think George Carey was the Archbishop at the time. There was basically a meeting called in a basement at Lambeth of a few people that were involved in alternative worship groups. I think Pete Ward might have been involved as well, where they effectively said, look, we realise this has taken place, it's going to be difficult we don't for a moment think that we don't need experimentation and innovation in the church. So, you know, keep on doing what you're doing. So, yeah, I thought that was quite a brave um, conversation really to, so that, so that I think gave people a bit of relief or assurance or something at that time. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that, that was a 
big blow nonetheless of course these things always are yeah yeah and of course it's very easy to point the finger I mean, they can also look at the Bible, though, and think, well, look at David, look for all the good he did. Just look at all the bad that he did. Yeah, no, no, for sure, yeah. yeah. I, I've often thought that in terms of cancel culture, where people are saying, oh, we're not going to do this, that, or the other. I'm like, well, you're still reading the Psalms. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and that's something that I learned from a previous boss in my radio days. You know, he said, look, just look about all the good that happened before it. Because, you know... At the end of the day, none of us are perfect. Yeah. And as yeah. we can see in the press today, you've already alluded to Soul Survivor. Unfortunately, it's going to happen again. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that what happened prior to that, we should then discard. Or maybe we should. What do you think? I think it depends. Uh, and it depends on your own experience of it too, I think. So, yeah, people who are close to these things, I completely understand that they want nothing to do with it or burn the books or smash the music or whatever it is. But I think for, for others, they're not quite so close to it. that They may not need that response. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's very different. I mean, actually, you know, talking about Greenbelt, that's a good example where the story broke about Russell Brand. And the, the next day, there's an email from Greenbelt saying they'd removed his talk because he spoke at Greenbelt a few years back from the archive or whatever. In oh, really? Sensitivity to those who were affected by it and you know i was surprised i thought really so yeah but I, you know people respond to these things differently but there's such quick pressure from social media these days that people feel the heat very quickly i think so it's quite difficult to know how to navigate i think maybe that's part of your frivolous answer if you ever come back with one ban social media oh yeah there we go yeah that, that could work <laughs> Or maybe not. Listen, thank you for answering that. And I'm sure that for those that you know feel off grid, they can understand a bit more from what you're saying on there. So thank you for your honesty there, Johnny. Yeah, no, fine. I did mention at the top end, Church Mission Society, CMS. How did you get involved with them, sir? Well, my background's in youth ministry, and um, I was always inspired by stories of cross-cultural mission because I thought in terms of relating to young people, there was a bit of a cultural gap between them and the church. And, and so... Yeah, that had always been inspiring. And CMS rang me up, basically, and offered me a job that was related to youth. And I thought, oh, do I want to do that? And the only thing I could remember that I knew about CMS was that in the village church I grew up in, they, they did what I thought of as slideshows for old people after church. You know, someone would come from Peru and people would sit around afterwards and have some slides so I thought, oh, do I really want to talk to them? But, you know, then I thought, OK, well, they might have the gold. So I'll go, you know, I'll go and have a look, see if they know about this cross-cultural mission stuff. But I could tick so many of the things that they said that they were looking for. And it was a job related to, I think their language then was engaging in mission and the emerging culture, which sounds a funny phrase now, doesn't it? But, you know, yeah, yeah. all this process of change was thinking how in terms of, mission and culture do we engage with it and that was a big question for me and then it was still connecting with youth stuff I was part of and then the the other thing was it was also a team that was set up to try and help CMS as a whole change you know because it was a mission organization that you know sending western missionaries around the world and doing whatever but it felt like that maybe was a little uh 
maybe the model needed to change let's put it that way so yeah i ended up moving there in 2002 i think and i'm still there so i've done 21 years so i mean i've done various roles in that time but i do find that relationship between faith and culture and mission is is uh, a very rich rich one albeit you know in a post-colonial world, it's not without its issues as well, as you can imagine. Because quite often we play catch-up in church. Certainly I've noticed that, that if that's going on in the secular world, it's like, okay, we've got to embrace that. And yet if you think about it, you go, yeah, but we were doing that decades ago, hundreds of years ago even. You know, And some people call, say, oh, well, yes, but uh, new age. Yes, but actually what you think is new age was happening in the early days of the church. So you know, what can we do about that to whereby we can say, actually, as Christians, we've been doing this for decades. What can we do? Well, I, I mean, I think it's uh, it's an interesting question. I think it's probably a both and kind of answer. I mean, I often think in terms of newness that novelty can be a bit shallow. So mm -hmm. in terms of things that are about change, if you, you get something novel, it can seem exciting, but it can be a bit shallow or thin whereas often new things that are drawing on in old things have much more richness to them much more depth i think so that's where i think it's a kind of both and i think certainly the, the post-modern conversation that we were having i think there have been massive changes in the wider culture over the last 50 years that you you've really got to pay attention to and take seriously to engage with or you're just gonna get stuck i think i mean i think it's a bit cloud cuckoo land if you think if we just stay the same we, you you might be waiting a long time for it to come around that it looks like it's a good thing again but i think there's great treasure in the in the tradition yeah and i, I think alternative worship was interesting in that respect in some ways it was maybe a turning back as well as an engaging with culture is often drawing mm. liturgy and ritual and things like stations of the cross or lent or treasures in the tradition but was mixing them up with visual projections and ambient music and so it was a kind of ancient future blend i think which i, I always thought was quite fertile and rich you know as a, as a move to make it certainly felt quite resonant with the wider cultural space in that moment i think well you mentioned labyrinth yeah. earlier on i said i wanted to talk about it so tell us more about what labyrinth was and is please well i was introduced to that through a couple of youth workers kevin anna draper and they talked to me about it they'd used it with young people in kent and they'd come across it in france in a cathedral and a labyrinth is basically a, a pattern in the stone on floors of some of the cathedrals in france like uh, chartres cathedral is probably the most famous and nobody quite knows what they were used for, but essentially it, there's one path. So you gradually weave your way to the center and then back out again following this path. But the thing that they'd done was basically take that path and used it. I mean, I still remember it. They, they kind of had uh, four things that they were exploring, I think, which was your relationship with God, with other people, yourself and the planet, and they explored those themes. And actually, it was the culmination of a confirmation class that they were leading. People walk the labyrinth and engage with those four themes. So I'm still involved in a, in a 
church called Grace that, that was one of the alternative worship things. We're going to be 30 years old in November. And we invited Kevin and Anna to come and lead the labyrinth there, which they did and we, we loved. So we've done a, a number of them ever since. I think they're, you know, they're wonderful aesthetically. That idea of walking meditation is good. And, and in 2000, with the turn of millenniums, somehow we, we came to persuade St. Paul's Cathedral to let us create and run a labyrinth in the transept, one of the transepts of St. Paul's Cathedral. And because they didn't want us playing any music out loud, we ended up recording an album with a series of meditations that you listen to. Get this on a discman. <laughs> so when you came, you were given a CD player and you walked around and press play on various tracks. Yeah, I mean, that dates it, doesn't it? But yeah, that was in 2000. So You see, that's my kind of stuff. I do like a sort of the early, well, it's not quite analogue, is yeah. it? It's more digital. But give me a CD any day over mp3 players and stuff okay yeah there you go and then i mean we're still we probably run a labyrinth every year to be honest one way or another we like them but the last one that we did was create one in a place called wolf fields which is an outdoor space in southall um so we've created an outdoor labyrinth for them in their kind of i don't know what you would call it it's like an urban haven i suppose in in south yeah so that was good fun to design that and raise a bit of money and make that last year yeah how much of it is the difference between this then and something like a maze that we see in cornfields well, I mean, technically, the difference is that a labyrinth's just one path. So you weave your way to the centre and back out. There's no choice of turnings on the way. And oh, right, okay. I mean, people that reflected on it basically say there are three parts to the journey. And this is how we tend to use it. The journey in, you're sort of slowing down, letting go, confession, quieting down. The centre is holy space, so a space to sit, pray, be with God. And then the journey back out is taking that encounter back out with you into the world. That's how we tend to spin the narrative of it, which works quite well. Got you. Do you remember Spring Harvest? Oh, it must have been about late 1980s, I think early 1990s, when some people thought that these new modern percussion instruments that are coming in, like the rain stick and everything else, that was so new age, it can't be here. And one very well-known American had it on stage. And uh, an incensed person got his glass of water, went over and threw it over the chap as he was playing it. Because well, this should not happen. Oh. You ever heard that story? I've not heard that story, but I mean, it, it was ever thus, I think, that I watched the film Elvis, and um, which yes. I thought was really great. But, you know, the it response was. to him gyrating whilst playing gospel songs or whatever was uh, similar. So, yeah, I think you often get these reactions to things that are new or whatever, people perceive them as a threat for whatever reason, yeah. So I was just wondering if people came up to you, maybe not with a glass of water, but certainly letting, letting you know their feelings that this, is, this isn't cricket. I mean, we have had that over the years, yeah, over strange things, yeah. I mean, I remember one, you know, it's just an aesthetic thing that we used to make slides on, uh, you know, project them on, through slide projectors. And I remember one guy being absolutely incensed that we didn't use a capital G for God on the slides. <gasps> but with, there was no capitalization at all. It was all just a lowercase thing. It was just an aesthetic thing. So I was saying, look, it's not a statement about God. But he was sort of red in the face by that point, you know. So, so yeah, people get heads up about things. I mean, 
there's nothing new under the sun, is there? I mean, going back to the story of the woman at the well, people got heads up with Jesus for being in spaces where he wasn't meant to. I mean, in terms of the pioneer training, that's the stuff I've been doing the last few years with CMS, you know, we've done things at mind, body, spirit fairs and so on, using the Jesus deck and praying for people. And I think it's good to get in those spaces, but definitely some people, they think, what are you doing? Yeah, it pushes their buttons, as you say. I've never had a glass of water thrown over me, though. Not yet. <laughs> Can't see it happening. I think it's uh, no pun intended. It's all being diluted a bit now, isn't it? And people seem to be more open to hearing what's going on. Well, yeah, you say that, but I think, you know, the arguments about uh, sexuality, certainly in the Church of England, show that there's still some pretty heated feelings around things. I think there's always people that perceive things to be a threat, yeah. Well, let's move on from that, because otherwise we could be detracted. I want to talk a bit more, if that's okay, about pioneer mission training, please. So what is pioneer mission training that you're heavily involved with? Yeah, well, the, this report I mentioned uh, the Church of England and Methodists did in 2004, Mission Shape Church, was, was essentially the church saying there's all this stuff popping up around the edges of the church, which is a bit of a surprise when overall the stats were gloom and doom and decline and ageing. And, you know, some of those things were in youth ministry or cafe church or alternative worship or networks or, you know, whatever. But there was a series of recommendations, and one of the recommendations was that the people starting these kinds of things don't seem to be the typical vicar or whatever. They're they're not so much a pastor-teacher, which I think is probably the gift mix maybe of most people leading churches. They're much more entrepreneurial. So in that report, there were two recommendations. Well, there was a recommendation that this different approach gift be recognized and the two ways it was described was one was as pioneer minister and the other was as a mission entrepreneur okay quite quickly the church of england you know said well we need pioneer ministry created a designation for ministry as a pioneer and just fast forward in a couple of years from that spoke to cms because Historically, CMS's connections, you know, were very much part of the Church of England in terms of Western mission. Well, I think they said to CMS, you guys know about cross-cultural training. Do you think you could train pioneers? So I was, at the time, I was networking and encouraging all this mission in relation to the emerging culture. We were very much in that conversation. So CMS said to me, can you design some training uh, for these pioneers? So that's what I did. I I said, okay, yeah, sure. I mean, we did a partnership initially with Oxford Brooks University and set up a foundation degree, had six people, I think, on that pilot year. But, you know, essentially, we've been connecting with and training people ever since who I sometimes describe as having the gift of not fitting in. Oh, that's me then. Yeah. So, you know, if business as usual is in one direction, they're always seeing something over on the left or right in the sidelines, as it were, that other people are not seeing. And out of what they see are able to build something, whether that's a cleaning company paying a living wage to uh, cleaners or whether it's a church for people who like boxing, uh, whatever, whatever it might be, connecting with young people on a housing estate. 
Yeah, so I mean that that's what we've done, and we started that in two thousand and ten. I mean, I I'd never really used the word pioneer before. I mean, I quite like it in some ways because it's not a religious word. I think it gets used quite a bit in the wider culture around women mm. footballers or whatever it might be. People are pioneering, but you know, it's not an easy word too in some ways. But I've absolutely loved that we somehow we've attracted people who've got crazy ideas. They want to make them happen. They're motivated by faith, following Jesus. Uh, they sometimes are on the back rows of churches, a bit frustrated with the way church is. They've generally got a heart for people outside of church in the community wanting to do yeah. things in those spaces. Funny enough, I had an email about this this morning. We would, we think we've just had the thousandth student who's done something with us. We've got a few hubs around the country and do stuff in Oxford. So we were just thinking about putting a story out about this and discussing who the thousandth person is. Wow. So, I mean, you know, not that they've all done amazing things, but there's something wonderful about that community of people who have, you know, see possibilities and they, they're doing things that are good in the world as a result. And they're, they're not all planting churches. I think sometimes people think a pioneer is like someone who starts a new church. I did some research around this. Maybe 40% of them might be starting, a you know, a new church community, but others are doing all sorts of things. But it's all good stuff, you know. So yeah, uh, yeah. I have absolutely loved it. I mean, I think it, I just so enjoy and think I'm good at advocating for those people in the church space, but also with those people, helping them do, you know, what the dreams that they're carrying. I sometimes think what we do at CMS is where often they they say something and people look at them like they're crazy. I think we usually say, oh yeah, love that. Love what you're about. So they, they kind of find a home at CMS. So yeah, we've built a community, a network of people around that who are doing good stuff. I mean, it's often, you know, community work is slow, long-term, requires a uh, faithfulness to it and so on. Yeah, yeah. Often it's at the edges with people at the edges. So yeah, it's great. So that that's the, the pioneer stuff that we're we're doing and cms has been a fantastic home for that and i think that's because cms gets a going to the edges but b gets questions of culture and change so isn't particularly phased threatened by somebody who comes along and says well the guys i'm connecting with are into boxing so you know i'm gonna start a boxing club and talk about faith related to boxing and create a church for people that want to punch stuff rather than thinking you're crazy cms thinks oh yeah we, we've seen this kind of thing before i was going to actually ask that because there's a, a minister i know and he has to keep on the qt to me i actually really like boxing as i do yeah so to hear someone that actually wants to form a boxing club for christians that is brilliant what kind of church service do they have then well, a couple of things that they've done. One is um, the guy, David, that set it up. He he trained with us. And um, one of the modules that he did was around worship. So he, he invented a, what he called Compline, which is a quiet meditative service. But he he set up four stations in the corner of the boxing ring and he rang a bell every three minutes or something and you moved from one corner to the next. So 
they were all things related to, well, I can't remember what they were, to be honest, but it was in the ring. I mean, the other thing I remember that he did was they had a baptism from some of these guys that wanted to get baptised, and um, they did that in the boxing ring in in the centre of the church. This is Church of the Good Shepherd in Collier Road, where this was. I mean, David's wow. now moved on. That boxing community is still going, but he's actually connected with a boxing club where he is now down in Eastbourne, and they're, they're starting to do boxing in St Elizabeth's down there. So he's on a repeat down there. So, yeah. But, I mean, I think these natural connection points for people, whether around sport or exercise, is closely related to spirituality for people. I think the whole connecting in the outdoors people naturally feel a sense of god and the beyond when they're outside so all the forest churches and mossy churches and all these things and then i think there's always been you know a natural connection point around young families and children and so you know all these things are quite in some ways they're quite obvious connections to make aren't they but i think what it is a good at are you know, having the imagination to stick with that space and grow something there rather than thinking. I think back when I was involved in youth ministry, you put a lot of creativity into communicating the message. So you'd go into schools and put a lot into that. But then then you'd think, well, now people can join the church. Whereas I think the pioneering thing is is trying to imagine how do you do the whole thing in a way that makes yes. Where people, I mean, basically it's about people feeling at home in the culture rather than thinking they've got to go somewhere foreign, you know. No, exactly. If we know, going into my time machine that I've just built here and we go back 150 years, you know, we'll see people want to play football on a Saturday morning. And I've shared this before. Oh, sorry, sorry, on a Sunday morning, because that was the only day they had off. And the church members would say, well, this isn't on. We're losing our men. And a couple of bright sparks said, well, why don't we form our own football club? And because of that, we've got professional teams now in the Premier League and in the lower reaches because of some great ideas. And that most probably would be what you're advocating here, isn't it? Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, I think it, I mean, it's back to what we were saying about politics, that it's about imagination. You know, it's about seeing those possibilities and making things happen out of them. And, you know, there is a wider culture change piece where some people find change very difficult. So you've also got to kind of pay attention to the wider system, reassure people, help Mm. people understand this has been done before, which, which is why I think CMS is good, because, you know, within the tradition of mission if you like engaging with culture has been one of the questions for a long long time so yeah that's the space we inhabit I mean I see my role as bilingual you know talking with pioneers helping them do their thing but also trying to interpret back to the church yes well taking CMS then and you talk about mission how much of it is to actually get the story of Jesus and who Jesus is out to people who don't know compared to how I'm looking at it from off-grid Christianity, people who just cannot go to church anymore because of maybe political infighting, they've had enough. They haven't given up on Jesus, but they've just had enough with church. So what can CMS do about that? I mean, in terms of mission, writ large, first, my take on mission would be that it's about the healing of creation. So it's not just about sharing Jesus. That's clearly a big part of it. But actually participation in good in communities, justice and so on is all part of mission too. But I think a lot of pioneers, there's also a big motivation on sharing the story of Christ. They've been very transformed by that. So want to do that as well. 
But in terms of the relating to church and people who who find that space no longer works for them, I mean, I, I personally think those people are part of, of a mission movement. This might seem an odd statement, but there have been a number of books over the years, Churchless Faith by Alan Jameson, Gone But Not Forgotten by Leslie Francis, more latterly Invisible Church by Steve Acethorpe researching church leaving in Scotland and all of those books what they've discovered is that those people have not lost faith in God or Jesus on the whole they've lost faith in church or in some cases they've left church for the sake of their own faith you know because to grow and move on they need to kind of do that but you know a lot of them are you know, meeting people for coffee, going to Greenbelt, listening to podcasts like yours or Nomad or whatever, meeting in small groups, discussing it, reading books, joining outdoor swimming groups, finding they meet God in the outdoors and so on. So, yeah, navigating faith differently. So I personally think that if you could measure all of those people in some kind of heat map of what the church is, because I still think that is the church, it's connected to Christ, that would change our view of the statistics on church, you know. I mean, so I see that as a mission movement. And when I read Steve Aesop's book, Invisible Church, on it, I started thinking, who did I know in that space? And I, I quickly realised that half of my wider family are in that space. And for them, faith is, you know, very real, important, shaping their lives in many ways. But for various reasons, they're not in a regular church. There might be, you know, meeting with people on a Friday morning, having coffee and changing the world. But, um, you know, the, the regular church thing wasn't working. So I suddenly thought, oh, this is very close to home. And I mean, I've retained going to church for me, but I'm part of a church grace and we meet once a month. It's pretty creative and so on. And then Jenny, my wife and I, we we have people around for food most Tuesday nights and we just sit around the table and chat, catch up. Sometimes somebody will share something, a poem or thought or where they're at, but, and then there'll be some prayer. And actually not all of those people would say they're Christians, you know? So it's, uh, it's just a gather around the table, but there's always food conversation and prayer, but we are still part of grace. So kind of connected in with that. So, yeah, I I think for people in that space, I, I think, it's completely fine and can be a really good space for people to be. I mean, I I wrote a chapter in a book called Imagining Mission with John Taylor, and it was a chapter rethinking church. And the way that chapter was constructed, every section of it began with imagine dot, dot, dot. And one of my imaginings in there that I really like, but I've never actually had many people push back on it, which uh, is interesting, was imagine if church is something you leave after a while. In other words, what if it was normative that when you became a disciple, say, as an adult, maybe you'd go to a church for 10 years or something, get immersed in the Bible, worship, whatever else. But the expectation was that you would live in the world and maybe find like festivals or spiritual direction or a group of people to support you. I think you need something, but you might come back to the mothership of the church or whatever every so often. But, you know, you've like 
you got it. You've done your time. You're a disciple. You know, so what What if that was the norm? Yeah. <laughs> that would change things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it would. And I was thinking also, I know it happens in America because there's been a big thing about it as well. But, you know, if you're like a Christian in the UK and, I don't know, you've got a motorhome, but you're living off grid, you think, wouldn't it be great if we could all meet up with our motorhomes and we could have a church service, all for those people that own motorhomes, would that be your kind of success story saying, yeah, we can help you out, come up with the ideas if I came up to you with yeah, it? Yeah, fine. Yeah, I, I suspect that's probably already happening. I mean, I saw the film Nomadland and it wasn't framed as Christian, but I mean, those guys were bumping each to each other. There was a strong community around the fire. They were remembering people that had died. I mean, I, you could see that was that was happening. I mean, in terms of the community yeah. off grid. So yeah, I, I think of, of course people need to connect. I mean, I'm still, sometimes I'm still a bit old fashioned, you know, I still like the Bible and I love the gospel stories. And I, I mean, I like fresh takes and thinking on them. I like readings that come from the edges, but you know, I, I still think that having a faith that's shaped in some way is good. You need some kind of practice there. But what the possibilities are for acting that out, I think uh, there's got to be all sorts of freedom and possibility there as far as I'm concerned anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, reading all your stuff, there's a word that I'd like you to explain more if that's okay, and that's the word dissent. Now, in football <laughs> language, that means someone's been sent off for saying naughty things to the ref. Because the quote you came up with, and I think it's brilliant, uh, it says, it makes me wonder how long I have survived this long in the Church of England as I identify strongly with dissent. <laughs> so I don't think it's got anything to do with swearing at ref. Tell me what you, what you mean by that, please. Well, I mean, all dissent is, is proposing alternatives to whatever the mainstream is. That's dissenting. You're dissenting from, you know, business as usual, I suppose. So I, I think that's a way of thinking about leadership, about pioneering. It's a kind of dissent, not necessarily out of anger. It might be out of frustration, but uh, I think dissent is a good thing. You need dissent if you're going to not get stuck. And one of the things I've learned is if you want to see change that has some chance of lasting, you actually need two kinds of dissent. So you want your pioneer who... I mean, there's a writer I really like called Gerald Arbuckle. He calls that pathfinding dissent. So people that find a new way of doing something, that, that's a great kind of dissent. Often pioneers think, if I just do that, that will be fine. That will change things. But what, what he says is that there's a second kind of dissent, which is authority dissent, which is where you've got someone who's more in the structures of things, who gets the need for the new thing, and they broker the space and they cover the back of the pathfinding dissenter. I've seen that combination works well. So if somebody, like the boxing church thing, yeah. if you just come along and say, I want to start a boxing church on your own, you know, a bishop or whoever it is might just say not on your life. But actually, if you've got an advocate who gets you and understands what you're talking about, they interpret back to the powers that be what you're doing and explain it, then you've got a much better chance of the new thing happening. So that, that's been a key bit of learning for us that it's definitely worth, yeah, find those people who will dissent by finding new paths but actually find those who get what that's about and can interpret it back to the system yeah 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 yeah. well in that case then the remaining time before we find out who your christian hero is got an idea i might know who you'd be choosing on this one before we do in a post-christian culture that we're in what's your own feelings on where the church is going these days where christ is in the uk I think we are in a post-Christian culture. Um, 
um, and I think it's helpful to name it as such. And in some ways, I think that's a bit of a relief because you you can kind of stop worrying about being too important or out of the centre and uh, act at the, the margins. I mean, I, I think the church has different responses and I feel differently about it on different days. Sometimes it feels like the church is very anxious and gets very defended, you know, in response mm. to that, which you can understand, of course, but it's not a great posture. It doesn't woo people towards it. Whereas I think on the other hand, you see people thinking, OK, post-Christian space, we need to do some new things. Let's just find ways to connect in the community, join up with what's happening, see what's going on. And I think when that happens, you see lots of lots of good that can come out of that. And, yeah. you know, rather than feeling like you've got to defend what you're doing and do this wonderful thing called church, you know, in terms of Jesus parables, it's much more like yeast and salt that affects the whole. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's mixed. I, I think there are definitely challenges for the church that are very, very real. I don't think some things ending and dying is particularly a problem. I think that's okay. You get that in the cycle of life everywhere. But you, what you want is good soil, new things to grow up, that to be encouraged so that there, there will be new growth and so on. Yes. I think it's it's a mix. The challenges are real. But in my view, the church absolutely needs those who see new possibilities and get get them going and needs to have the courage to stick with that rather than to think, oh, well, let's just keep doing the old thing. You know, you definitely want some new wine that's growing. Yeah. So you think it's going to be OK then, the future for UKs as far as uh, being a Christian is concerned then? I mean, I, I have great faith in, in God. I mean, what I've often thought, in terms of the natural world, in a woodland, if you f fell a bunch of trees and create a clearing and let the light in, that soil will have such a rich seed bank that new life will grow. It will take a while. And I think if you shut down all of the churches in Oxford, just sold all the buildings, shut the whole thing, said no church for the next year, the same thing would happen. You, you'd effectively, you've got a seed bank of the, the gospel there and people would start new things, new things would pop up. And I think yeah. that's to do with the life of the spirit and God and letting the light in. So if, if I have hope, it's not so much in the church, it's in God. <laughs> no, that's a great answer. And I, I like the analogy as well of the woodland. I think that's, that's really, really good. Before we then get to the final question, last thing then, for those that listen today that feel they really are off-grid, that they can't get back to the church anymore, what would you say to them? I think that's fine. That's a good space to be in, you know, so don't feel bad about being in that space. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that I think you do feel bad, but if you do... <laughs> People I know in that space, there's a bit of a process, you know, of deconstructing and working out what's going on and trying to make sense of it and, you know, reading, listening, talking with people. And that that's all good and important. You need to give that that time, I think. It really helps if you can find people who can be friends on the journey. Friends might be podcasts and festivals and online groups as well as people that you know but I, I think there comes a season for people too where you want to kind of re-engage with building communities of hope that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to go and join a church but you want you, you feel a tug to think 
well, actually, I want to connect with some other people and I'm, you know, wound up about asylum or whatever it is. What can I get stuck into in my community or, you know, so I think to start dreaming and doing things that are based on hope rather than just deconstruction, it's good when people get into that space where they get involved in some new practice. But by saying that, I don't, I'm not saying people need to go and join a church. I think people have moved on from that way of doing things. So, but, but yeah, re-engage, I think. But yeah. And if people haven't read it, I mean, I think if you need reassurance, something like Invisible Church by Steve Aisthorpe shows you that this is, it's a big movement, you know. Yeah, yeah. And because in America, we learnt from uh, interviewing a couple of Americans over there, they actually call it the Duns movement, as in they're done with yeah, it. Yeah, they're done. <laughs> Which is really, really good. Haven't given up on Christ, but they're just done with giving to the church. Thank you so much, sir. Wow, that hour has gone by very quickly. Thank you for everything you've shared. It just leaves me for one final question, uh, young Johnny, and that's who is your Christian hero? And when I say this, we always have a, a little thing tagged on at the end. The person has to be dead and not in the Bible. And the reason why I say I think I know who it is is because I asked you this 25, 26 years ago. I'm pretty sure I know what your answer was. So it'd be interesting to know who you're choosing today. So Johnny Baker, who is your Christian hero, please? Okay, well, the person I've picked is Vincent Donovan. And he he was a, a Catholic priest who went as a missionary to share the gospel with the Maasai. And uh, there's a book called Christianity Rediscovered that shares the story. And essentially what he found when he got there was typical of the era. So there was a mission compound with a school and a hospital and a church. People would come from the tribes, but over the time that they'd got education, discipleship and healthcare, nobody had remained Christian from the Maasai. So the book is the story of where he writes a letter to the bishop saying what we're doing isn't working. I'm going to try something different. And he goes to five different groups of the Maasai every week to talk to them about the gospel. And he, what he wants to do is to share the story of Christ, introduce them to Christ, they can be baptised, and then he wants to grow Maasai expressions of church that are led by Maasai, so indigenous Maasai church. And it's a beautiful story. I mean, it's not without his pain. Unsurprisingly, he got into trouble with the Catholic Church authorities, the diocese and so on later on through what he did. But, you know, that that's his quest. And I read that when I was a youth worker back in when I was in my 20s. And I just thought that is what I need to do with young people in this country. You know, stop inviting them to join this church culture thing and work out how can I do this with young people. I basically think I'm on the same quest with pioneers and so on that I'm training now. What does it look like to help people to remain in their own culture, to become leaders in their own culture, to grow, you know, to become disciples of Christ in ways that are not foreign to them, but they're at home. So Vincent Donovan, but I obviously didn't say that 25 years ago. <laughs> no, you didn't. Where was Vincent Donovan from, please, Johnny? I think he's American. Yeah, he was American. He was a member of the Spiritans, which was a Catholic order. So went as a missionary with them to Africa, I guess, Eastern, Central, Eastern Africa. Yeah, with the Maasai. Wow. How many hundreds of years ago or how long ago are we talking well, about? The book he wrote, Christianity Rediscovered, was published in 1978. I looked this up to see if he was dead. <laughs> <laughs> he died in 2000. Wow. Well, it's great to hear somebody talking about someone that we don't really know about. And his name again is, please? Vincent Donovan. Sounds like a, an actor, doesn't it? 
<laughs> I will be checking out more about him. Johnny, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure catching up after all these years. And I'll tell you offline who I thought it was <laughs> you chose, but it certainly wasn't Vincent Donovan. Johnny Baker, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, great. Thanks ever so much, Martin. Good to see you.